Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan US Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan US Center's blog on US politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohit Malik and I spoke to Professor Jessica Chen Weiss, Professor of Government at Cornell University. As a part of the US Center's US-China seminar series, Professor Weiss joined us to discuss China and the future of the international order. We also discussed President Biden's approach to China and the future of US-China relations. So you've recently written about something that you call the China trap in American foreign policy. Can you tell us a bit about what this is and what it means for US-China relations? Yeah, what I refer to as the China trap is really the instinct to guide strategy based on outcompeting China as opposed to driving forward an affirmative vision of the world that we seek. In my view, the lodestar for American foreign policy ought to be uh, the world that we want rather than the world that we fear. And I'm concerned that U.S.-China competition risks becoming an end unto itself, pushing leaders both in Washington as well as in Beijing to really double down on maximalist demands and positions really meant to thwart the other, uh, crowding out efforts to tackle common challenges like climate change and pandemics. So how has President Biden's approach to China been different than that of President Trump? And to what extent is the relationship between the US and China dependent on individual leadership? There are important differences, but also some important continuities between the two administrations. Starting with some of the differences, I think that the Biden administration has placed much more emphasis on working with allies and partners to deal with the China challenge, whereas the Trump administration was much more unilateral in, in its approach, and in fact, in, in some cases, uh, you know, castigated or denigrated allies and caused a lot of frictions there. Now, to some extent, the Biden administration has used both multilateral as well as unilateral approaches. Uh, most recently, in the recent semiconductor restrictions, I, you know, I think that. The administration is cautiously optimistic that they will bring others on uh, to to join with the United States in imposing those kinds of restrictions. Uh, But so far, at least it has led in that instance uh, more unilaterally. Another major difference, I would say, is that the uh, whereas the toward the end of the Trump administration, uh, senior officials uh, all but encouraged regime change in China, um, you know, suggesting that, you know, there's another path for China's people to take. Um, The Biden administration was very clear and has repeated multiple times that the United States does not seek to change or transform China, but rather to shape the environment around China. Um, And so that, too, I think, is is a critical difference, even as the Biden administration has also emphasized this kind of systemic contest between democracies and autocracies. So I would say it's not a full kind of turning the page on on that approach, um, but nonetheless, there, I think, are key differences that the Biden administration has emphasized, even as there is, uh, to some degree, continuity in some of the policies uh, that the two administrations pursued. In what ways should America respond to Chinese authoritarianism domestically and its growing influence globally? I think the most important thing that we can do is make our democratic institutions work at home. The greatest threat to democracy comes from within rather than uh, from without. And it's by being the best version of ourselves that we can, uh, you know, once again, you know, shine by the the power of our example, uh, rather than by uh, seeking to, you know, denigrate or undermine uh, authoritarianism. In my view, you know, a world safer democracy um, is, you know, for better or for worse, probably going to have to run through a world that is also safe for 
autocracy to some extent. Otherwise, we will continue uh, to see this sort of ideological competition uh, escalate in ways that are detrimental uh, to our own uh, domestic democratic uh, institutions uh, and way of life. So I think it's this way by running faster, I think really that should be the primary uh, thrust of our response, even as we you know, strengthen targeted protections against the overreach of, of Chinese authoritarianism, um, you know, to the extent that it intrudes on or corrodes you know, democratic freedoms, uh, academic freedom, I mean, those need to be uh, resisted. And ultimately, I think that if the two countries, United States and China, are able to, you know, with the world, identify plausible uh, terms of coexistence, uh, I think that these different systems, as they always have, can coexist uh, in an inclusive multilateral system, you know, one that affords protections and prevents or at least deters um, interference in, in other countries' uh, internal affairs. In a recent article with Jeremy Wallace, you write that China and other states, including the US, selectively subscribe to different international institutions within the liberal international order. Can you elaborate on what these are and what the selective approach tells us about how China views the liberal international order? Thanks. And maybe if I could also just extend my previous answer to suggest it's also important to recognize that the United States and other liberal democracies will continue to stand up for our champion human rights. But I think it's important that the means that the United States and others use to champion uh, those values actually you know, bears results as opposed to ending up um, being more of a kind of symbolic naming and shaming that may, as a number of political science studies have shown, actually cause a more of a backlash and in terms of a counterproductive response inside the, the target the country, eroding, for example, a support for women's rights, et cetera, when the kind of that naming and shaming comes from a, a country like the United States, who's seen as a geopolitical rival or adversary. As far as the, the Chinese approach to international institutions and the international order has really been, I think, you know, quite varied. In some cases, China has styled itself as a defender of certain aspects of the international order, particularly the United Nations and its charter, uh, which again enshrines sovereignty and, and equality and non-interference between nation states. What the aspects of the international order that uh, the Chinese Communist Party has been much less comfortable with, of course, are the emphasis on universal values that privilege uh, individual political rights. Uh, and the, you know, the Chinese government has been you know, more actively engaged in trying to uh, rebalance uh, those kinds of uh, rights towards ones that um, emphasize state sovereignty uh, over the individual. And so in this way, I think it's accurate to say that China seeks to reshape the international order, but that is different from seeking to undermine, subvert, or overturn it. It is very much more of a, what I call it, a disgruntled stakeholder inside the system. What do you see as the future of US-China relations? Could global issues like climate change, for instance, help to foster a cooperative relationship between the two states? On the present trajectory, I see the United States and China essentially engaged in an action-reaction spiral that unfortunately is uh, you know, crowding out efforts to cooperate on issues like climate change, and I think more even more disastrously, maybe leading in the near term to some kind of a crisis or showdown over Taiwan in particular. So I don't think that a conflictual or adversarial uh, relationship between the two is fated or inevitable. But without steps that both sides take back from the brink, uh, I worry that we are uh, in for a much more uh, dangerous uh, period ahead. And 
I think that in order to put the United States and China on a more stable footing, a better track, I would say you know a couple things are important. First is uh, efforts to take steps back from the brink. Um, in the current atmosphere, I don't think that unilateral concessions or accommodations would be wise uh, or prudent, but that in a reciprocal, coordinated and proportionate fashion, the two sides could state, take steps to uh, effectively limit uh, or put bounds around their competitive actions um, and lower and begin to lower the temperature to create um, you know, a bit of breathing room, first of all, to get our domestic house in order. And, and I think that the, the Chinese side too would uh, you know, seeks you know a, a measure of stability in order to tackle you know really pressing problems at home, and as well as to continue to develop and modernize. Um, given that China remains weaker than the United States at present, over time, this uh, you know kind of um, what you might consider a detente or at least a, a thawing of of the relationship might, when paired with efforts to drive forward coordination or collaboration or cooperation in areas where the two sides have common interests, not just climate change, but also infectious disease, counter-narcotics, non-proliferation, sort of um, macroeconomic stability. There are a lot of different areas where the two sides have overlapping interests, including, I would say, a functioning international order and global institutions. So over time, I think that combination of uh, efforts, one, to reduce the risk of a proximate conflict and um, efforts to foster a more uh, productive relationship could mean that the United States-China relationship, while you know, probably not you know, becoming uh, the kind of strategic partnership that once existed, could nonetheless have more of this balance um, between competition and cooperation while holding at bay you know, the, the more confrontational elements and to prevent really, you know, unfortunately, a hot, a hot war. I think that would be you know, one of the best things that we could hope for, but I don't see it happening right now. I would like to touch upon the point that you made with regards to the international order and how China has very obviously benefited from this global system, particularly economically. As you noted, China is not looking to upend the order, but more to shape it. At the same time, you also describe China as being a disgruntled actor. So how long do you think China can remain disgruntled until it wants to perhaps change it more drastically? And I suppose on the flip side, do you think at any point the United States would want China to accept certain political aspects of the order instead of simply shaping it for China's own benefit. So I think that the it's not clear how much longer the center of the international order can hold, given the kind of centrifugal forces that are pulling it apart. I would say that you know the United States, as much as China, is also a disgruntled stakeholder. And um, if you have two disgruntled stakeholders, both acting outside of the inclusive multilateral system or within the system to hold up its progress or you know paralyze it I, I would say that you have uh, you know a growing number of institutions like the WTO you know having trouble making a real headway of course there has been some limited reform you know a recent deal reached at the WTO to tackle you know, subsidy fishing subsidies and, and covid vaccines but uh, you know the heart of the matter is that many of these institutions are you know increasingly seen as out of step with the kind of the, the challenges that the the world currently confronts, and so I would say that it's not just it's not like we are going to be waiting to see that the, the kind of that disgruntlement. I think both in the United States and in China, it can be measured in terms of the efforts to work with smaller groupings of states outside of those encompassing institutions, whether that 
is the um, the BRICS or the Shanghai Cooperation Organization on the Chinese side, or um, you know the G the G seven and the AUKUS and the Quad on the U.S. side. And so these kinds of efforts to invest in alternative groupings, I think, will over time reduce the importance of uh, encompassing institutions like the United Nations, unless these two states continue to reinvest in uh, driving forward results within those uh, inclusive institutions. I would say that we see a little bit of that, you know, for example, the United States trying to, uh, you know, invest in, you know, summits on, you know, food security and other things like that at the United Nations and China similarly uh, trying to work through the United Nations to advance its you know, global development initiative, global security initiative. But so far, those, you know, efforts to to drive progress through the United Nations have, you know, met with kind of reluctance or, in fact, outright opposition from the other side, you know, Washington or Beijing, either sitting out uh, those initiatives or working to kind of um, block or uh, reduce the involvement or endorsement of um, the United Nations. And so I would say that, you know, that doesn't necessarily, you know, so, so far we don't see the kind of complete divestment from, and maybe we never will, but at the same time, I think it does mean that the prospects for working together uh, right now uh, within those institutions are, we're not quite there yet. Professor Weiss, thank you so much for joining us at the ballpark today. My pleasure. Thanks again. Jessica Chen Weiss is Professor of Government at Cornell University. And that's it for this extra inning of the ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Jessica Chen Weiss for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Mohid Malik, and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us at any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And please tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the failing US Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening.